No, nice to be with all of you. Good to see you. Some new faces, some familiar faces. It's good to be among Dharma friends. And this is, um, I don't know, it's kind of a big night, I'll say. Now, my name is Kodo. Um, I've been um, responsible for Young Urban Zen for the last year and totally intend to continue doing that. Uh, but this is a this is a, a big night for us because it's our last dun, 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 last Zoom yaz. We'll continue meeting, we'll continue recording and posting talks on all the places we post talks, but it's been 120 plus weeks. Uh, 120 community nights. That is amazing. And uh, this is a great time to say thank you. Um, all the many volunteers uh, here in the room. I see Jojo and Mireya and Matt. A lot of effort and care goes into uh, holding this group and has for the, the last couple of years. Um, yeah, so big thank you. And thank you to the Yaz community. Like This doesn't happen without you. It's been so joyful to, to meet with you. Um, so online activities won't cease uh, as we know them. They'll change a little bit, but uh, I'm encouraging more peer-to-peer -peer meeting uh, for online stuff for those folks who, who can't be with us in San Francisco Bay Area. And then next week we'll start uh, meeting in the Buddha Hall at City Center. So I look forward to seeing some of you there. Yeah. So having taken a minute to just acknowledge all of that and everything that might bring up for you. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, the theme for tonight is tending the flame. How do we tend the flame? How do we care for this refuge we've been creating? And I think I want to start bringing, breaking this open with a, um, there's a 19th century composer named Mahler, Gustav Mahler, who was known for breaking the mold, right? And uh, he is attributed with saying something pretty fabulous, that tradition is tending the flame, it's not worshiping the ashes. Tradition is tending the flame, it's not worshiping the ashes. Um, you know, it calls to mind these Buddhist themes of impermanence, the path of practice, uh, like what, what gives life to our practice, what's like really juicy and up and real, you know, not what has the Dharma been before, what is it now? And I think that's what I want to name for tonight, that our task as practitioners is in this ongoing, sincere and dedicated way to keep reflecting on these, this question of what is the flame that I'm tending? What is that flame that I'm tending? And how? How do I do that? Another way, another way we might think of this is like, what is the living spirit of our practice? Here and now, and how do we care for it? So I, turning this question in my own mind, I've been thinking a lot about a really, really old story. I've been thinking about um, someone I mentioned from time to time, from the Buddhist time, the Venerable Ananda. And he was the Buddha's attendant he was for 20 years, this totally loyal and good-hearted character. 
and you can imagine that uh, at some point the Buddha is going to pass away. And it's in the last year of the Buddha's life, and Ananda knows this. The Buddha's been getting really sick. And you can imagine the sort of reflection coming up in Ananda's mind, like, how am I going to take care of my practice now? What am I going to do? The Buddha is passing away. How are we going to care for this community? Is liberation even possible anymore? So as the Buddha, I love how he puts it. He's advanced in years. He's 80 years old. He's like a decrepit old cart, self-described, that only goes because it's strapped together. Same with his body. And uh, uh, he offers Ananda this pointer. You know, if Ananda is wondering, like, what do I do? How do I practice? What, how do I proceed from here? How do I tend this flame? And the Buddha in his wise old age gives Ananda this pointer. He says, Ananda, be your own island. Be your own refuge with no other refuge. Be your own island, your own refuge with no other refuge. Let the teaching be your island and your refuge with no other refuge. Sounds like two statements, right? Be, be your own island. Oh yeah, the teaching will be your island. And I think the trick here is that the Buddha is encouraging Ananda to so become the teaching uh, that it's sort of woven in him. But I can't help think of Ananda's grief. I've been thinking about that a lot recently. It even says in the text, like Ananda goes and stands in a door jam and has this like, he starts crying and talking to himself like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do now? But this kind instruction, like this, this kind moment, the Buddha encourages Ananda, like talks about, he's got, he's got all these other monks there and he talks up Ananda's amazing qualities, his intelligence and his kindness. And he tells him, what does it mean to be your own refuge? To practice the four foundations of mindfulness are our um, instructions for meditation. In Zen language, we would say the Buddha told him, you become your own refuge by practicing Zazen. It's pretty remarkable. So we have Mahler. We've got the Buddha. We've got Ananda. I think for us, you know, we can, we can pull these stories from these different centuries and these different times, but they're all pointing toward this notion of intimacy with ourselves, with a flame in ourselves, a sort of blaze of being, right? That fuels a dharmic life and can be a sort of kindling for our own happiness and well-being and the happiness and well-being of others. So I think we do well to, to, to reflect on what is the, like, what is this inner flame and how do I care for it? One of, the, one of the initial responses might be, you know, sometimes I'm in touch with my inner flame and sometimes I'm really not. I'm really, really not. I'm totally lost. Like, what, it, what are you talking about, inner flame? Um, I don't know. For, for some of us, some of the time, like, inspiration may be crystal clear and the path ahead is very clear. But sometimes it's totally cloudy. And so I remember a time in my 
in my life, <laughs> maybe more than one, but one in particular, when I was, I, was facing, I was facing a really big decision. And it was a time of transition, uncertainty in my life. I felt a lot of confusion. And I didn't, I didn't know how to go forward. Um, I couldn't get a clear sense, right? There was a serious longing, like I could feel the wish for an answer, but it didn't yet have a shape. And that meant that I couldn't step forward into a trajectory. I was stuck and kind of whirling. And I had a really good Dharma friend give me a simple exercise to do. And he said, every morning, first thing I want you to, when, as soon as you wake up, first thing I want you to do is just ask the question, what's the most important thing? It doesn't matter what comes up. I want you to, I, he's like, I don't, I don't care what comes up. I want you to do this for 30 days. And just see what happens. See what, see what, uh, what notions arise. And we do this sometimes in Yaz breakout groups, right? We'll do a repeating question and, you know, your, your well-rehearsed, top of the mind, common answers will come up first and then you'll go a little bit deeper. And then maybe you'll like something surprising will pop out of your mouth. Anyway, just the, just like a steady dedication to the simple question, like what, what's the most important thing? And in terms of practice, there are variations on this question like, um, what am I seeking? What am I seeking through the practice? Maybe I'm seeking not to seek. Maybe I'm seeking not to suffer. Maybe I'm seeking for community. But what is it? What's motivating? And perhaps as the, as the, day go, the days go on, the re repetitions go on, something deeper will reveal itself. And we can start to recognize something of the, the characteristics of our own particular inner flame. I don't know if it will quite look the same as uh, all those awesome images we've been getting from the web telescope over these last 24 hours, but it can be pretty amazing. What's going on in there? I think, for, I think there's some good news also because um, this group of people, uh, you have already found yourself at 7.45 p.m. on a Tuesday night in a Dharma talk. <laughs> You know, um, I don't know if it was clear deliberation or there's some intuition or like gut feeling or sense or something. But my point is, you're, you're already investing in yourself. You're already investing in your relationship with this, whatever that, whatever that inner flame is in you. And you're investing in your practice. So in a certain kind of way, you're already, you're already saying with your actions, I'm going to the practice for refuge. I'm going to the community for refuge and nourishment, protection, well-being. And that's sort of um, going to the practice, going to the community for refuge. Classically, it's expressed as the three refuges, the three gems, the three treasures. Uh, there's the Buddha. Of course, the awakened one. I like bringing him up a lot. Um, I was once I was once told that the uh, the job of uh, 
someone in my position is to uh, repeat the words of the Buddha. Um, the Buddha, the awakened one. Good in this context, as we're talking about inner flame, because in some of these early metaphors, he's likened to the sun in the sky. He's been called a light unsurpassed. And then the second refuge of the three is the Dharma, the teachings, and also the qualities that arise through the practice. It's like when we tend the inner flame, what is it that we're developing in ourselves? That's the, that's the refuge in Dharma. And this is like the light that shines out of the sun, it covers everything, and it dispels the cold and the dark. And then there's the Sangha, the third refuge, the community. Look around the Zoom screen and see some of that. <laughs> Anyone who encourages you, I don't know if you're part of uh, groups online or if you come to San Francisco Zen Center or what else, but um, I don't know about you, but for me, it's really encouraging to uh, be with um, other folks who have an interest in self-inquiry, whatever that might be, whatever their practice is. I get a lot of, a lot of energy from that. So classically, refuge in Buddha, refuge in Dharma, refuge in Sangha. So tending the inner flame. You know, sometimes, uh, yeah, while sometimes the, the, our inner flame is pretty clear to us, sometimes it's not, there's also this other thing going on. There's no shortage of people who will tell us how to live. There's just not a shortage of that. People who have a really good idea about how we should live our lives. Um, you can think of your own examples, but I'm, I'm thinking of like uh, everything on the spectrum from well-intentioned people to someone who wants to advertise something to us to someone who actually has harmful intentions. Like what, what are their priorities? We don't know, we don't know. But there's no shortage of people who want to give us input about how to live our lives. And I think when we're caring for our inner integrity, this inner flame, it can be a really good idea to rebalance the diet of input with something that's nourishing. Again, you're at a Dharma talk. Um, but for the, for the sake of like inspiration and looking around and wondering, like, what is my... What's the heart of my um, the heart of my inquiry now? What's the the hottest part of my inner flame? I get inspired by looking at the minds and the actions of the the ancient Zen masters from Tang China, the Japanese masters, the Indian Buddhists from centuries ago. Like they would have been doing this for a long time and working really hard at it. Um, but one of the reasons that I look to them for inspiration is because I, I'm convinced that the tradition is just bent on my liberation. It's like why the whole thing exists is for my own freedom and for yours and for everyone else's. So that seems, that seems like a fine counterpoint to like any bit, any input that, that could be coming in for any other number of reasons, you know? So some cues we might take from our from our Zen tradition to uh, tend the, tend the inner flame. I'll give you four. Uh, one, 
just can't substitute daily sitting. Just can't do it. Or sitting as often as you can. It might not work for your life to sit every day, but sitting as often as you can. And as I said before, when the Buddha instructed Ananda to become his own refuge, to become his own island, he followed that up with meditation instruction. He said, what do I mean when I say be your own island, be your own refuge? I mean practice these meditation instructions, this cultivation of the harmony of wisdom and compassion. There's a, um, what I think is a pretty entertaining quote from Suzuki Roshi about, uh, about encouraging people to sit zazen. He says, when you realize how important it is to practice zazen, before, what, before you know what you're doing, you don't know why we're practicing. You think you're quite free, he says. I think he used to tease his, his uh, group from time to time. You think you're quite free, whatever you do. That is your choice, he laughs. That's your choice. But actually, you're creating karma for yourself and for others. Laughing, laughing, laughing. And still, you don't know what you're doing. So you don't think there is a need to practice Zazen. But you know. <laughs> um, Suzuki Roshi is so lovely. Anyway, that was 1970. But I, I appreciate him always encouraging Zazen because the, the power is so profound to clear our vision when we're trying to look into ourselves or look out into the world in any sort of clear way a sitting practice can really help for the dust to settle for the vision to clear reactivity to calm second cue i'll take from our our zen practice about tending the flame this might sound counterintuitive stay close to the inner flame by staying close to how we suffer. Stay close to the inner flame by staying close to how we suffer. That's where the heart is really actually moving and living and the life is actually happening. And it's one of these Thich Nhat Hanh, miracle of mindfulness. It's like one of these miracles of awareness that an intimacy with the process of our suffering more than the content of our suffering somehow, somehow releases the grip of clinging and we become more free. But there's something, there's something to not miss about our own suffering that it is completely in this moment, 100% totally true. This is really happening right now. And that little kernel, that touch, that connection with the truth, that's a connection with your life. Third pointer. I'll ask you a question. How many of you, if you're in a position to do this, how many of you would hire someone just based on their resume without meeting them? Maybe not, like now? No, I don't think so either. Like I would want to Zoom. I'd want to hop on a call. 
I would want to meet them. I want to have tea. Um, point here, so much is communicated face to face. My teacher is fond of telling me that something like two thirds or more of communication is nonverbal. There is so much that gets transmitted face to face, body to body. And the conclusion I draw from this is to practice with other people. Do it with others. There's so much about the practice that gets communicated by being with other people. So do it online, do it in person, have tea, you know. Fourth pointer, another question. How am I staying honest? How am I staying honest? Particularly, how am I staying honest in clarifying my practice? Because this, um, I, I'm probably familiar with uh, this, this quote by Dogen, of course, that characterizes Zen practice as one continuous mistake. It really feels true <laughs> a lot of the time. And the way I've come to understand that over, over the time is we practice with the understanding we have and then it matures again. We have some insight and the, the whole notion of the practice is reframed. It's like a uh, subtle shift. It's like seeing, seeing the world from this vantage and then taking 20 feet and looking at the same thing from another side. How can I illustrate this another way? It's like having these having these aha moments that's like, oh, I was totally missing this one little piece of the practice. Everything fits together now. Perfect. I've got it. And then we practice with that understanding. And then sometime later, the fruit falls off the tree and bops us on the head. We have another insight and we're like, oh, this is the practice. One continuous mistake. That's a supportive point to this notion of like, how do we stay honest? One of, the, one of the implications of one continuous mistake is it's easy to fool ourselves. Yeah. Helpful to have others. Helpful to have a community. Particularly helpful to have a, a mentor or a teacher in your life that you can, you can... The thing I want to highlight there is it's not someone to direct your practice. It's, and it's not someone to direct your life. But it's someone who can ask you, what is your inmost request? What, like, what is the heart of the matter for you right now? And then really hear what you have to say. So it's not someone telling you what to do. It's more like someone who can really um, hear what's in there and ask the important question. I think that in my experience, that helps, uh, that helps me to stay true. I feel really accountable to my teachers. So cues for tending the flame. These four that I brought up, daily sitting, staying close to our own suffering, practice with a sangha, and um, stay honest with a teacher. If you're looking for more inspiration, suggestions, sort of an ongoing practice is um, one of these Zen phrases 
If you want to attain the ancient way, please observe the sages of former times. Isn't that great? If you want to attain the ancient way, please observe the sages of former times. I think what this means is that um, to ask the question and study the lives and the actions of these people who have mastered the path that really put their whole heart into it. And I'll say maybe the Dharma is in the details. Like what, like very much the particulars of their life. Like what were, what were the principles of their conduct and their everyday decisions. Uh, these are our family stories in this tradition. And I always read them with a little bit of cultural humility because often I'm having to like hop across continents and centuries to get back into the story of 13th century to Japan to read some read some bit of Dogen, right? So I can't I, I have to drop some of my my cultural assumptions when I enter. And Dogen says continuous practice that we're talking about is tending the flame. It's not necessarily something people in the world love. But it should be the true place of return for everyone. And then I found this little example just as a taste of if we're examining the conduct of these these old masters, in this case from China, Zhaozhou. This was a, two sentences about his, his own practice, and it goes like this. He committed, I will inquire about the Dharma of anyone who excels me, even a seven-year-old child. And I will teach the Dharma to anyone who has less understanding, even a hundred-year-old. I particularly like the first half. I will inquire about the Dharma of anyone who excels me, even a seven-year-old child. I love imagining this scenario of an ordained monk, Zhaozhou, uh, in his full garb. Let's say he's going on alms round or something, so he's got, his, he's got his wooden sandals on, and he's got his hat, and he's got his alms bowl, and he goes to the door, and there's a seven-year-old child, and he's like, can you teach me the Dharma? Can you teach me the Dharma? I will totally listen. I love, I love that. I love that humility. Hmm. Yeah. So sometimes we will be just on fire with the practice and sometimes maybe not so much. You know, sometimes it's like a tiny bit of heat from the coals hiding under the ashes or something. Other priorities come up in our lives like this is just part of the cycle of practice, right? But whether it comes as like a big, massive fire or this like still steady candle of daily practice. It's just through continuing to tend this flame. We open, develop and purify the heart. It's a beautiful thing. And then we pass on that goodness. When the flame is mature in us, then it's ready to pass on. Like we pass it, pass it on all the way along as we're supporting Sangha and practicing others. And then people in our lives, I don't know if you've noticed this, people in your life start to notice little changes in you. Um, usually you're a little bit kinder, a little bit softer, just a little, not a lot, but a little. 
and the people in your life start to notice and they're like, oh, maybe there's something to this. Keep doing what you're doing. But when that flame is fully mature, we say it's a, we transmit the lamp. Transmit the lamp. And one of the, one of the teachers in this tradition, two generations back from me, he just passed away not too long ago, Sojin, Mel Weitzman, had some large, large number of um, Dharma transmitted students. They were teachers in their own right. And someone asked him, when do you know someone's ready? When do you know someone's ready for Dharma transmission? And he said, when the Dharma comes out of them, when the Dharma comes out of them, and I trust them completely. Yeah, I can imagine a, a, re, like a relationship, 15 years of mentorship with this old Zen master and uh, the sort of trust that develops. And when Sojin recognizes, oh, the Dharma is just coming right out of them, then it's time. And then we say the lamp is transmitted. And I like to imagine this like line of candles lit in the dark, just going back, 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 back for generations. And then I like to imagine the candles extending farther, 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 farther in front the generations to come. This one continuous flame. So a lot of warmth there. So just to close, a student asked Suzuki Roshi what he thought American Zen would be like in the future. And you know what he said? Very colorful. I wonder if he meant Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Important to, when we're tending our flame to remember, rem remember something we know well. Good friendship, so important to the holy life, to the, the life of practice. Holy life is a technical term, actually. It's been 120 weeks of Zoom, yes. We've just been taking impeccable care of this refuge with each other and becoming the teachings, becoming the refuge for ourselves. And I think we've done a lot in this time to shine that light on the world. So to close, a quote from Paul Ryushin, Paul Haller. He led a one-day sitting at City Center this weekend. And in, at the end of this day of Zazen, he said, I hope that in the process of sitting upright, you discovered a connection to the depth of your being. And then that we bring the merit, the fruits to the world. And the vehicle for carrying that into the world is simple. It's kindness. So thank you very much. <laughs>